Hello, and welcome to Sherlocktober, a most irregular podcast. In a slight deviation from the norm, uh, we have a very special guest this week. The most special of guests. It's Becca. Hello, Becca. Hello. If I knew I was going to be called special, I'd have been here ages ago. <laughs> I probably should have put that in the pitch, to be honest. Yeah, um, definitely. Definitely. I kind of figured that I wouldn't really have to oversell it to just be like, hey, Becca, do you want to come and just talk about Sherlock Holmes for ages? <laughs> I think that's the quickest I've ever replied to a Twitter DM. <laughs> just saw it. It was like, yes, yes, capitals, yes. Right now? Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was at work at the time, so it might have been a bit inconvenient if I'd like, you know, pulled out my mic from my bag and be like, right, I'm just going to do a podcast. Can you guys not talk to anyone? <laughs> I just got like a vision of you just like like opening a drawer and pulling out like a bottle of fake blood for Halloween. <laughs> just be like, oh no, I've stabbed myself in the head. I need to go by. I'll be back tomorrow. Fake blood's expensive, dude. Just just use like <laughs> you know ketchup from Aldi. It's the same consistency, kind of. <laughs> it's like Becca, why does your blood smell of vinegar? Uh, no reason. I have a really bad diet. Okay. <laughs> uh. I eat a lot of pickles. Uh, well, on the subject of uh, criminal observations, uh, what we're here to do today is talk about Sherlock Holmes. You probably haven't heard of it. It's uh, it's pretty niche. So really, this is going to be all about you because oh, no. I've got like other episodes to talk, you know, to talk about stuff. Really, what I want to know from you is how did you get into Sherlock Holmes? Like, what was your like gateway into this sprawling mess of a thing? Okay, uh, good question. I was trying to think about this earlier, just in case this came up. So I'm glad I did. Um, I've always been a big fan of uh, mysteries, murder mysteries, things like that. I blame my parents because we grew up watching things like Jonathan Creek, uh, Poirot, Marple. Um, I think I saw some Sherlock Holmes, Jeremy Brett when I was a kid, but I'm, I'm not sure if I'm mixing my memories up. So I'm not going to commit to that 100%. But I've just always loved thriller books and particularly crime books. Uh, crime fiction is a really special genre because it's a genre that looks beyond the time it's being written in and it examines the social mores of the time and criticises them. The detective is always an outsider figure looking into a society and therefore they're able to criticise it. And it's something I've always found fascinating. You know, all it takes is, you know, one little murder and six or seven lives get torn apart at the seams and you realise nobody were the people they were pretending to be. And kind of Independently to that, I had chosen to take English literature at uni. Um, I've always loved reading, so I figured it was the natural thing to do. And in the second year of university, we did a module on crime fiction, and we did a lot of examination on crime fiction. We read Hound of the Baskervilles, we read um, Philip Marlowe books, we read uh, P.T. James. It was the first female detective, and it's completely slipped my mind. It's, it's the book with the first ever, like, modern female detective that actually said hey this is a woman doing crime stuff isn't that cool god, yeah. um, um uh god i used to work in a bookshop i should know this uh yeah, yeah she she investigates a murder in oxford and it's all to do with like oxford university and privilege and stuff but we, so we studied all of that so when it came to third year to take my uh dissertation i was like straight in there i, I went to see the lecturer who taught that module and i said i want to do my dissertation on the role of the detective in crime fiction that is what I want to do. So I basically spent an entire year just studying in between my other modules. And when the year began, mum bought me a lovely hardback copy of uh, Sherlock Holmes that had all the Sherlock Holmes sh short stories and novels in it. And I just sat and read it for like, I don't know, three, four days. I think it took me to get through it because when I sit and read, I sit and read. Um, 
and I just loved every element of it. Um, and I went to HMV uh, to buy DVDs. Remember when we used to do that before Netflix? You used to have to go outside and buy DVDs. It's madness. <laughs> so <laughs> I got the, the complete Jeremy Holmes, Holmes run and I sat and watched it. And again, I consumed it in about two, three days because I just loved how happy it was to the books until the sort of last season where um, poor Jeremy's health was in decline. So they had to kind of write around that. But I loved how it took um, it took the era and it both glorified it and also brought home just how despicable it was in many quarters and didn't pull its punches. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. It was basically kind of academia leading to, wow, I really love this actual thing and now I'm going to be a fan of it. And I've been a fan of it since. I love that. I love Sherlock Holmes in the 20th Century, the cartoon series, <laughs> yeah, because it's uh, amazing. I... And Watson is a robot. Yeah, I've, I've, I've touched on that. It's kind of like... Uh, in a previous episode, I was having to explain to someone who'd never seen it. Um, <laughs> it's like, how could you have never seen it? It's okay, sure, I guess. Yeah, why not? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sherlock Holmes lives in the future. Watson's a robot, and Lestrade's a lady now. Okay, okay, this, I'll buy it. And you're like, no, 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 it really exists. Here's the link. The thing that that I tried to sort of to point out uh, to Christy when I was telling her about it is, <laughs> I, I don't think they ever really stop at any point, and like. <laughs> examine like Sherlock Holmes going so you're a robot okay I can probably I can kind of get my head around that why are you wearing a rubber mask of my best friend's face <laughs> yeah like that's kind of macabre you know a guy it who's been dead for like macabre. 300 years it's not the first one to bring him forward in the, the future in one day there was a made for tv film it was a pilot <laughs> uh I think it was made in Canada and yeah. that's where he's been cryogenically frozen and he's discovered by Watson's great granddaughter who revives him. Is, um... And the, the best thing about it is that he learns how to use a computer in a night using the instruction manual. And like by the next day, he's able to hack into the local police database because he's Sherlock Holmes and he's that clever. <laughs> Is that, that after uh, not knowing what a computer is, he can hack one. Is that the one that's uh, set in San Francisco? Ah, it might be. Yeah, it might be. It's really hard to find nowadays. I watched it online ages ago on somewhere like YouTube. Yeah, it's weird, that you, bring, it's, down, it's weird but... that you bring that up, actually, because uh, we started off uh, Sherlocktober with me and Christy doing a special episode of our podcast where we recommend stuff to each other. And that was literally what I recommended to Christy, that exact film. That's amazing. Um, it it's was gonna, really, really good. It was going to be a toss-up between that and young Sherlock Holmes. And I was like, mm, let's go for the harder to find one. Let's be a dick about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you have found it, it is actually really good. And the guy playing Holmes is really, really good. I don't really remember a lot about it. I don't even remember what crime they were trying to solve. I just remember being really bitter that it wasn't up for full syndication. Because it was like, it was made as a pilot. Yeah, there was there was like a descendant of Moriarty involved somehow. That's um, it, Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> a, lot of a lot of ham acting. Yeah. Uh, uh, what got, do you know what gets me about that is um, what, the first time I watched it because I watched it on uh, I, I taped it off the telly and I was watching it and I watched like several times. Um, and like at a, there was a point where I was like, right, it's a bloke with long hair and he's wearing like Victorian clothes, and the end where he's being driven around San Francisco on a motorbike <laughs> by a lady. Do- this is the Doctor Who movie. <laughs> this is the Doctor Who movie with Paul McGann, but it was made like three years earlier. What the fuck's going on? Someone saw that and was like, "I could make that into a half good Doctor Who story you know with what? elements from Star Trek." Well, uh, like I said to Christy, it was actually uh, that was written and directed by uh, the guy who invent uh, the guy who created uh, the Bionic Woman. Uh, wow! The Incredible Hulk uh, TV show. 
uh, I think he created V, and he developed uh, Alien Nation uh, for TV as well, based on the film. So that's kind Thank of that's, you. that's a very eclectic like. Body that, that's basically my childhood because I used to watch <laughs> sci-fi channels in the afternoon, and it was always Incredible Hulk, Bionic Man, Bionic Woman, uh, Alien Nation, V. Yeah, wow, jeez. No wonder I like it so much. Yeah, you like <laughs> um, all of those, then maybe like the cryogenic Sherlock Holmes story. Um, yeah, this is actually his passion project to use all of those to like get influence in the industry, so he could make his cryogenically frozen Sherlock Holmes passion project that never got picked up syndication. I'm really bitter about that. Have I mentioned that? It's so bitter. <laughs> like that, that's, that's a cinematic universe I could get behind. Forget this like Marvel oh, exactly. and DC stuff. Like yeah. the Hulk, the Bionic Woman, Sherlock Holmes and guinea pig eating aliens. <laughs> I'm, I'm down for that. That exists in a mirror universe. That's the great thing about physics. That does exist somewhere in the cosmos. <laughs> that's, um, that's the kind of thing you'd get in uh, in Kim Newman's books, because uh, because uh, Kim Newman has like a sort of tangential relation to Sherlock Holmes, because he wrote a series, The Man from the Diogenes Club, yeah, which is like it's kind of like the 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 Diogenes Club is a kind of like proto Torchwood, really. It 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 occupies the same. Yeah, you know, it's it's like it's like the X Files weird stuff, <laughs> Men in Black type thing in in his shared universe fiction, and like uh his 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 most um famous series, uh, Anno Dracula, which mm. is. Uh, an alternate Dracula where Dracula wins in his own book and he marries Queen Victoria and then all the vampires come out of the woodwork and it becomes wow. like fashionable to be a vampire in like Victorian society and the, the, one of his main characters in that is a guy called Charles Beauregard who is a spy who works for Mycroft in the Diogenes Club um, oh cool and it, it, it's kind of an interesting thing because like Holmes isn't actually in it uh one of the first one of the first like characters because it pulls in characters from like all, from everywhere like from like not just from victorian fiction but from vampire fiction like from, from everywhere i mean there's there's a bit um like at one point like they're not named obviously for like um copyright reasons a lot of them but there is mm. one point where uh lestat from the, the Anne rice books is in it uh pr- the at one point they mentioned prince Mamawalde, which is the real name of blackula um, so it's kind of like all stuff from all over but uh, one of the first characters that you meet in the book it's, it's all about the investigation into Jack the Ripper but this mm-hmm. time with vampires um, nice. so one of the first characters you meet is Lestrade and Lestrade's become a vampire um, oh wow okay and he sort of mentions that there's the, Dracula has essentially set up a concentration camp for political dissidents uh, one of whom is Sherlock Holmes who's opposed to the uh, the Dracula regime that's mm. taken over the country so and it was kind of like one of those things where Holmes as a character displaces so much water like he's he's such a powerful in a way character mm. that if you put him in a story you kind of it's, it's kind of like you know when, when you do the when they um do experiments where they put like you know like a lead weight on a rubber sheet to show like gravitation and stuff yeah it's kind of like that he like he exerts too much of a weight because it's sherlock holmes because he's like the most famous that kind of you like have to like focus, find so. a way to get him back out of the story so yeah. your own characters can do stuff that's really interesting because i read earlier this year a parody book of sherlock holmes called warlock holmes and in that it's basically revealed he's not a great detective he's a warlock who summons the dead to kind of answer his queries for him <laughs> that sounds it's- amazing it's amazing. It is incredibly funny. And if you're familiar with Sherlock Holmes mythos, then you'll really like it because there's a lot of references dropped. Um, it's like a, it's a group of four short stories with one overarching plot. But in that, Lestrade is also a vampire. So that's really oh. interesting because that was published late last year, early this year, I think. 
So, yeah, yeah, I got it for Christmas because it wasn't out in time. So, yeah, it was late last year. So that makes me wonder if someone's kind of thought, yeah, I can write the Strahd as a vampire. I'm going to put him in my funny <laughs> book. It's something that uh, I've already touched on in a previous episode, but I, I, I would feel remiss if I didn't mention it to you. Uh, mm. There is uh, a book. I don't know if you'll have read it. Uh, it's called All, Cons- All Consuming Fire, which no. is Sherlock Holmes uh, crossing over with the Cthulhu mythos for, uh, of H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> and Doctor Who. So oh my god it's a doctor who book where uh the doctor goes back to the victorian era uh gets involved with sherlock holmes and dr watson and then they end up on a planet where there's all kinds of lovecraftian stuff going on nice it's, oh i'm gonna that down it's 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 a, it's a very weird book but it's 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 also like a really good sherlock holmes book like it, it's written as uh like a lost Holmes book uh, and they do very interesting things with the characters like when they end up on uh, an alien world Watson kind of takes it in stride but Holmes shuts down because he's just completely divorced from anything he has any frame of reference for so he kind of like okay. runs out you know he, he doesn't have the ability to process what he's seeing and processing what he sees is kind of his whole so like mm. deprived of that he's kind of like uh he, he basically blue screens <laughs> yeah that was actually a whole chapter of my uh, dissertation was basically on how detectives are very much of their era and judge criminals very much from their era. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes has the thing where, well, the parlour maid wouldn't have done that because parlour maids don't do that. You can't do that. Like nowadays, we don't have that kind of very class system. So if you did bring him forward to the future, he would actually be incredibly bad at solving crimes because he'd be great at the forensic stuff, but he wouldn't be able to apply it to anything. Poirot's the same. At, even CSI people, if you sent them back, they wouldn't be able to do their jobs either because they rely too much on like computers and stuff. Um, mm. So, um, yeah. So, like, I, I always academically shoot myself in the foot whenever I read them because I love, I love stories. That's they're my <laughs> second favourite thing. But there's a small part of my head that goes... Sherlock Holmes can't solve crimes if he's not in Victorian England. I'm like, shut up, brain. I'm trying to enjoy this. <laughs> There's a book that I really like. Uh, it's called The Alienist uh, by Caleb Carr. And mm. it's only kind of vaguely related to Sherlock Holmes in the sense that the main character is like is kind of a riff on on the sort of the Sherlock Holmes archetype. And uh, it's, it's set in 1898 in New York. And it's like, a, it's about a serial killer sort of the murders are described in like in great detail and they are ex- like extremely gruesome uh so um the main character is a, a an, a, an alienist which is what they used to call psychiatrists yeah. uh, called dr laszlo kriesler and he he essentially creates the science of uh forensic profiling where they basically he sort of sits down and says right we need to like based on the information that we have we need to try and work backwards and extrapolate the kind of man who would do this and then when we do that we'll hopefully get closer to actually like finding out so and he he gets like various help like he's got a friend uh his kind of like watson is a socialite who's telling the story and is still participating in the process uh there's a woman who works at the police department she wants to be the first female police officer in new york uh, and this was when uh, theodore roosevelt was the police commissioner okay. uh, and there's a couple of uh jewish police detectives who are like they're they're sort of in- into the at that at that point relatively new science of like of, of forensic science and it's so weird to read a book where it's like where fingerprints would mm. not be admissible in court because it was so new like they are something that's like as cast iron that we think of as like you know if, if you can place someone's fingerprints at the scene that's like as good an indication you could ever hope to get that they were there at the time of the of the crime happening 
But in yeah. this, it's like the idea that it's like everyone's fingerprints were completely unique wasn't an, wasn't an accepted science. Well, it wasn't you mm. know it wasn't an accepted fact. So it was kind of interesting to see like that kind of almost like you know Sherlock Holmes being sort of crossed with something like um, Thomas Harris and mm. seeing you know yeah. like profiling. And I... that makes me wonder actually how much of Sherlock Holmes's investigation would have been admissible in court in Victorian England. I know we had a separate legal system, but a lot of his deduction was very, I'm going to, I'm trying to look for another word that's not made up, <laughs> but he did literally say, you know, in it, it was based on a massive assumption he had made from his observations, from the kind of person he was dealing with. And I think it almost gets to a point in the Victorian Holmes canon where if a criminal knows Sherlock Holmes is onto him, he's like, you know what? Fine, I cop to it. He just has to tell the Stroud I'm guilty, and the Stroud will believe him. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the the, re- the way that I found the Alienist was I actually found a Sherlock Holmes book by the same author uh, called The Italian Secretary. Uh, okay. It was about uh, sort of Holmes and Watson in Edinburgh, and it's something to do with uh, it's kind of like tied into the murder of David Rizzio, who was the uh, secretary to Queen Mary, who got stabbed to death several times you know like i think you know stabbed to death like a ridiculous number of times by mary's husband and his like cronies um Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like holmes investigating a ghost story and then i thought that sort of led me on to to look for the author's other books because this it's like a weird thing it's like i think if you asked me to list my my top five sherlock holmes stories like none of them were written by sir arthur conan doyle Um, no there's been a lot of talent since um and anthony horowitz's continuation novels you know the the two that he's written uh house of silk and moriarty are both incredibly good i really love that sherlock holmes is still such a prevalent character because he is in a way quite a blank canvas he's got his characteristics he's very eccentric he takes drugs he doesn't really care for social mores you know he's easy to write because he's actually not got a lot of depth to him i'm not i'm not being critical i'm just he is there to solve crimes that is his function john watson has far more of a character in my opinion so he's easy to write for but it's incredibly hard i think to get him to get the story right um because the thing that i think a lot of people miss is obviously i spent like a year just solidly studying crime fiction and a lot of the sherlock holmes crime stories they basically cheated Because they all work on Sherlock Holmes having evidence, having information, witnessing things that are hidden to both Watson and the reader, even in the odd story where Holmes himself is the narrator. And if you actually compare them with mystery stories like those penned by Agatha Christie, they would probably not have been admissible in the crime club because the crime club had very strict rules about not fooling the reader and giving the reader a fair opportunity to be able to solve the crime alongside the detective. So in that way, many Sherlock Holmes stories are actually kind of almost thrillers. Uh, Things like Hound of the Baskel, you get all the clues, but until you get the pivotal information that the portrait in the library looks like the neighbour Jack Stapleton, which Holmes deduces but in no way intimates to Watson, you can't solve the crime. You can't figure out what's going on. So... When I then read kind of offshoot stories like House of Silk by Anthony Horowitz, like uh, his book Moriarty, like the plethora of short stories that have been written that take place in the Holmes canon rather than being kind of things like Anno Dracula, I think a lot of people struggle to get the balance between making it feel authentic because they're giving the reader too much information 
it's like you can tell when it's something not written by Arthur Conan Doyle because you can actually have a fair stab at trying to <laughs> trying to solve it because you are just given all the info. There's one, I think my favourite non-Arthur Conan Doyle pen story, I, I think it was Stephen Baxter that wrote it. And it's about a guy who invents a machine that subverts gravity and then is killed by his own machine. Like with an Arthur Conan Doyle story, you're given just enough information but not enough information but then at the end you do think oh okay yeah that makes perfect sense and it makes perfect sense how holmes has deduced that that makes sense neil gaiman also wrote a good one where people are secretly lizards i think study an emerald is that what oh, that yeah, was that about was, um that again that was a crossover with hp uh, lovecraft's uh, cthulhu mythos yes, uh, I've actually, that's it yeah uh, i've got it uh the there's a, i've got a book called uh, shadows over baker street which is full of mm. short stories that are sort of a, a crossover between the the Cthulhu mythos and Holmes and it's got like various yeah. ones like there's one that's um them invest uh Holmes investigating something uh supernatural going on for the Dutch royal family where the narrator is H G Wells. Um, oh, that's cool. Um, sort of an interesting thing about Holmes as a character is um I like what you were saying is like I think there's a reason that like a lot of Holmes pastiches essentially involve like inserting Holmes into another story like like just looking at my shelf I've got uh Doctor Jekyll and Mister which mm-hmm. is just Holmes and Watson being transplanted wholesale into the curious, uh, the curious case of what was it? The strange case of uh, strange case. Side. Yeah. Um, Fred Saberhagen, I know, has written um, Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. That's quite. A, yes. That's like a weirdly popular one. Mm. Uh, one of my favourite Sherlock Holmes stories is The Canary Trainer by Nicholas Meyer, who wrote The Seven Percent Solution, which is home in Phantom of the Opera. It's when he's presumed dead and he gets a job playing the violin in the um, in the Paris Opera. And all, and then people start dying, and there's like a ghost, and Holmes is just not having it. <laughs> he would be the absolute best in Scooby Doo, because they like all the creepy stuff would start happening. Him. Yeah, it is because like the the weird stuff would start happening. He'd just be sat there going, "No, it's not a ghost. It's Shaggy, stop screaming. It's not a ghost. It's a guy wearing a costume. It's all a guy in a costume, except at times it's a girl in a costume." Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I've just spoiled every single Scooby Doo episode was, that's ever aired. I'm so sorry. I was literally just about to watch Scooby Doo. I've never seen it, <laughs> and now now there's no point. Yeah, it's kind there's of no point. It's kind of weird that, as far as I'm aware, there was there's never been a Sherlock Holmes Scooby Doo, which is weird because Scooby Doo's crossed over with like with Batman and mm-hmm. the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, <laughs> like and various wrestlers probably wrestlers cross over with a lot nowadays. <laughs> I would I would love to see um, a Sherlock Holmes WWE crossover because <laughs> he was you know because he, he was pretty handy so um he was yeah he was oh my god i remember uh, um there was a lot of uh gonna inspire i here but fake geek boy ranting <laughs> i found when the robert downey jr uh the trailer for the first sherlock holmes uh film came out and a lot of them were going what he just sits at home and solves crimes he doesn't punch people uh, they're like did you ever actually read a Sherlock Holmes books? He doesn't just sit at home. That's Poirot. Poirot's that's the guy who doesn't like to... Yeah, that's Mycroft. That's his brother. <laughs> They're not exactly twins. You know, one's very tall and lanky and the other's very, you know, not. Um, yeah, there, there was a lot... There is this kind of general perception that Sherlock Holmes was intellectual and therefore didn't get into the, the punch-ups. But actually, he did. He was very streetwise and very physical. That, that just always he, amused uh, me. But uh, Watson mentions uh, boxing in single stick among, mm. like, Holmes's, uh, the sort of when he draws up the list of Holmes mm. in um, A Study in Scarlet. 
Yes, I'm he sure, does. Like, and he boxing can do some and single stick as well. I yeah, think. Uh, Baritsu, yeah. which is Baritsu. as far as I'm aware, entirely made up. Yeah, but <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle heard it in passing at a party. It was like it was something Itsu. It, I'm at a bar. Baritsu, that'll do. Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street, which is uh, I think the the first Sherlock Holmes biography uh, by William S. Baring Gould, and uh, it, it does sort of mention, you know, it it. it it's kind of it's one of the most sort of interesting games almost in in literature is approaching the Holmes canon as if Holmes was a real person. Mm, um, yeah. So like, and like I know a thing that I've come across a lot is people saying is like Sherlock Holmes must never have died because his obituary was never published in the Times. Um, but it's a weird it, thing when you think that people were armbands at one point. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, he never really died, but there was that time he faked his death and people had funerals for him. <laughs> I remember that thing. Yeah, and then there was there was a, a gap of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle trying to get people to read his historical uh, romance type fiction, and yeah. people just were like, "When you doing more Sherlock Holmes?" Um, <laughs> not, not like moving on, but obviously we're talking about like how, what Holmes means to us as well. Um, I'm I'm ace. I'm pretty open about it. I'm asexual, and he's like one of the only characters that i can actually point to and say this character would to be asexual um possibly aromantic as well so one thing that i don't like when i'm reading or watching sort of extraneous holmes media produced by the people is when people like force him or crowbar him into romantic situations because it's like i get it he's pretty hot and you want to bang him <laughs> can we just could the ace community just have this one character please yeah. Please, because he never shacks up with anyone in the book. There's the woman, but even that's you know if you actually read the story, it's he has respect for her mental prowess. At yeah, best. That's, that that's the thing that's always kind of annoyed me in uh, adaptation. Certainly, is they sort of crowbar Irene Adler into a kind of position mm. where mm. she's like, where she's a criminal. It's like, well, she's she's actually not. If you know, in the story, she's not really. You no, know, not she's a not criminal really... master type. She's... Like the the one thing to say about her is that she's got a shit taste in boyfriends. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But when they sort of they cast her as you know, as, as they do essentially sort of cast her as, as Sherlock Holmes's Catwoman, it's kind of like it's kind of not really a fair reading no. of her as a character, and it's also it's, so like you said, it's sort of adding an element to Holmes that maybe isn't necessary. Yeah. Um, certainly not in the sense that it's like you know. Because, like you said, the way that he's in in the books, I know Conan Doyle. Um, Conan Doyle's like personal view on it was that he didn't really care because um, yeah. William Gillette, who st- who staged uh, Holmes' plays, did sort of say to Conan Doyle, "Is it all right if I marry him off in the play?" And Conan Doyle's response was basically, eh, "I don't care. Yeah, okay. I've got me money. What about you know? Do whatever you could, want." Could you- can you kill him in the play as well? He literally said that. He's like, you may you marry him or murder him or do whatever you wish. Oh, uh, he, was, he was pretty done. Um, I know there's, yeah. um, sort of for years, there's been like a sort of a school of like queer readings of Sherlock Holmes, mm. you know, abound, as have been popular for decades now. Certainly the, um, a lot of the time it comes up as a joke, the idea that like Holmes and Watson mm. as a couple. Yeah. I mean, I can, I, it, you can read it that way, I think, in a very romantic kind of way. Because let's face it, Watson gets married twice and never talks about his wives again. Because <laughs> he's too busy thirsting for shots. I know there's there's a there's um 
I have like I, I read the thing that someone wrote where they were saying it's like you know the the inconsistencies about uh in, in the books of, you know the information <laughs> about exactly how many wives did Watson have at one point um yeah and because like because because that's the thing because it's like some I've spoken to people about and they said well Watson couldn't have been gay because he got married and it's like because no gay men in Victorian times ever had, you know, a, a marriage. Yeah, lots of like of... Oscar Wilde was yeah. married or anything. Um, no, it's not like bisexuality and pansexuality are things. Yeah, uh... it's, it's, I, I'm sort of very in favour of death of the author. So I'm like, it's all, you know, as equally valid. But there are certain ones where it's like certain interpretations, like like him being asexual, do make more sense within yeah. the the information that you get from the text. There's so m- much stuff about Sherlock Holmes now, like in in across like all media, not just in books but films, TV shows, uh, video games, board games. I actually found out. Uh, uh, I, I looking. I was looking into uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, uh, the movie, and there there was a video game of that, but it was only released in Japan for the MSX, which is a <laughs> like Jap- Japan specific. Uh, console that never got released outside of Japan. So it's, I'm I'm trying to see if I can find the soundtrack for that because I might steal some music for it for the theme song for this. Um, yeah, definitely. But uh, why did you, why does Japan get all the cool stuff? Well, this is the thing. It's uh, the Ace Attorney series of video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Did uh, a game set in the Meiji era, which is uh, which is you know in Japan's history corresponds to a lot of the Victorian period. Uh, mm-hmm. And Sherlock Holmes as a character, and he's like. A silver-haired blonde, anim- anime so. pretty boy with uh, steampunk goggles yeah. on his deerstalker, yeah. and uh, Watson's a girl, and it's like oh, his I didn't daughter. Realize Watson was a girl. She, she's wow. kind of like his adopted daughter, Iris Watson. That's, cool. and that... That's the one they've never brought over here, isn't it? They've never translated yeah. it. Yeah, m- <sighs> much to my rage. Um, that but it's it's kind of like a weird thing of like Holmes as a dad is I've got a play of uh, Sherlock Holmes versus Arsene Lupin, and like. Sherlock Holmes's son is a character in it, like, and it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I mean, okay. sure, why not? And it, it's kind of weird to, to have like Holmes as a dad. He's like, because he's he's one yeah. of these like, people. You sort of you look at him and you think you can barely take care of yourself. Like, yeah, and you you're not like you have the Baker Street Irregulars, but they're like your employees. He's not like a father figure to them. I guess in House of Silk he is because that's the whole bent of the book, you know, by Anthony Horowitz. But yeah, I I can't imagine him taking care of a dog. Yeah, it's like Watson is basically his dad in some of the stories. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's like... like, it's only the fact that his best friend is a doctor is the. It's like, <laughs> yeah. the there's a there's like a, there's an AU of Sherlock Holmes where he never met Watson and then Mrs. Hudson just found him one day dead over his chemistry <laughs> bench because he forgot to eat for a week. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I can I can completely see actually. Um, that's yeah. I mean, in terms of Sherlock Holmes ta- uh, taking care of himself, I think my favourite trivia from the series is that Jeremy Brett was kind of just doing his thing one day, and he met a fan who was a kid, and the kid said to him, "I love what you're doing with Sherlock Holmes. I love Sherlock Holmes. I idolise him." And Jeremy Brett was like, "Oh shit, this guy idolises someone who does drugs." <laughs> so he went to the studio, and he was like. Sherlock Holmes isn't going to do drugs anymore. And they were like, but Kane's kind of his thing. He's like, yeah, kids are watching this. I'm not cool with kids being cool with drugs. And that's the reason that the episode, uh, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot, is the way it is. Because they had to write it into the script that Holmes wouldn't be doing coke anymore. So they did a whole episode where he detoxes and then he never touches it again for the rest of the series. 
Oh yeah, he's which like, he I love symbolically like buries his syringe and um... yes. He, well, he goes on a very trippy adventure first because he's basically going through all <laughs> symptoms. It's 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 pretty hard to watch if you're like unwell or feeling a bit dizzy yourself because <laughs> the the camera work is something else. Again, it's like a different time. Uh, talking about you know taking a character from their historical context, lining them into the present day. One of my sort of favorite versions of Sherlock Holmes now is Elementary, and that makes a plot point of drug use. And how the fact that, you know, now we know things like you can't just blithely use cocaine. You know, <laughs> it, it's people used to use cocaine like it was aspirin. It's like, yeah. we know that you can't do that now. And I think that like that's one of the, the sort of the masterstrokes of elementary in sort of bringing stuff to the present day is saying, you know, someone like Sherlock Holmes would would, you know, would probably always try and seek out some way to deepen the mm. like sensory input which now is 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 going to be sort of like vastly you, you know more overwhelming than it would have been like a hundred years ago yeah um but like what does such a person do in a society where you know drugs are illegal for the most part um mm. so that was a very that was like an interesting way to approach it whereas the the team we were talking about earlier i know that had a plot point yeah. of the fact that holmes had some cocaine uh, that that sort of becomes a plot point, but it, I mean, I guess him cryogenically, I guess cryogenically freezing yourself is one way to detox. Um, yeah, I'm surprised like the Priory doesn't offer that, you know, <laughs> offer that as a service. Like, we'll freeze you, see how you feel when you come out. Um, or you can pay to be deep frozen for 35 years. It's much the same effect, but you might be a bit, you know, <laughs> breakable when you come out. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, I've not seen Elementary. I have to admit, I've never seen a single episode because Sherlock kind of turned me off the idea of a, a modern AU. But I've been told by basically everyone, so it's on my to-do list of a show that I just want to sit down and binge watch the next time I've got a day off work. It's it's very good for that. Um, I will certainly say that uh, Elementary was doing the kind of things that I wanted uh, Sherlock to do. Like when I when I first saw Sherlock, I was like, oh, I, you know, I hope they do this, and I hope they take sort of. They, you know, they take more liberties with like concepts and sort of and update them and change them and and uh, which Sherlock didn't really do, but Elementary does really well. I I I tend I think I like it because uh, Lucy Liu as Joan Watson is quite possibly my favourite Watson, just because I've always liked it when Watson isn't having Holmes's shit. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's sort of they're the best Watsons. Those are so that's my sort of like preferred Holmes Watson dynamic. Um, <laughs> that was one of the things that I enjoyed most about because um, uh, I've only seen the first Guy Ritchie film but uh, I watched yeah. it and it was kind of I watched it as like this is okay it's perfectly watchable Robert Downey Jr. is you know he's a perfectly good Holmes uh, mm-hmm. Jude, Jude Law is not who I would have cast as Watson I would have cast um, Gerard Butler um, yes, because I've always I pictured Watson as being a bit more sort of heft having a bit more sort of heft to him um, yes it's an interesting thing because I've seen like you know because I've I've been reading I've been reading Sherlock Holmes books since I was a kid so I have lots mm-hmm. of like illustrated versions and in a lot a lot of people draw Watson as being shorter than Holmes which I thought was odd because I like in my head I always pictured it as that they were essentially the same height but Watson looks taller because okay. because he's been in the military he'd have a more upright bearing but whereas because uh, Holmes is always yeah, like slumped in a chair or hunched over his like chemistry set like he'd have absolutely terrible posture yeah um, I've, I've always sort of thought of it as they're the same height but watson looks taller um uh, but okay. I, I liked i liked jude laura's watson i like the fact that one of hmm. the first things he does in the film is punch holmes in the face 
Yeah. Um, and like, yeah. like throw his waistcoat out the window because he'd pinched it and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah. If you like that, you will like the second movie as well. It's even more insane in terms of the plots, <laughs> especially especially the Moriarty stuff. Uh, the guy playing Moriarty in it, I can't remember his name. He's in The Expanse at the moment as like the the rabble-rousing socialist. Um, oh, he's been in loads of things. I can't remember his name. He's brilliant as Moriarty. And it, Jude Law gets even more because, of course, he gets married in the second film and Holmes just can't stand it so you get this whole entire plot which is just amazing and yeah it, it's really really good and, and Numi Rapace Rapace I never know how to say her surname but she's in it as well and she's really cool um <laughs> yeah but yeah I mean... talking Watson because every Sherlock Holmes podcast and every will always focus on Sherlock Holmes but Watson is just as important to the narrative because he is the narrative. In my opinion, if you have a bad Watson, it reflects badly on Holmes because you don't get the dynamicism that they had in the books. And every Sherlock Holmes fan under the sun will tell you, like, Watson in general media is perceived as an idiot. And that's really annoying because the books basically imply that he's almost as clever. It's just that he either jumps to conclusions too easily or believes the best in people. He kind of has the heart that sometimes that Holmes lacks. But in terms of intelligence, he is incredibly intelligent. And Holmes himself says to him, wow, you're a really smart guy. And I like having you around because you are smart. They do several uh, several things. And Hound of the Baskervilles, arguably the most famous Sherlock Holmes story, is basically Watson having to carry 75% of the narrative and witness things. <laughs> And he is very observant. He draws the wrong conclusions because, again, like I said, he believes the best in people. He also believes the worst in people because of their class system. But he is a clever guy. He's very resourceful. And it really saddens me when I get an adaptation that would have been otherwise okay, but Watson was terrible. I know I, I did yeah. ask you about this. Uh, I said, was there any particular you version? And you, you, you mentioned the uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, with Ian Richardson and was it Donald Churchill as Watson? I believe it was Donald Churchill. Uh, now, yeah. I tried to find this somewhere to watch it, and the only version I could find on YouTube was one where they'd like flipped it horizontally and spelled. Oh, I hate that! And pitch shifted it up so everyone sounded like chipmunks. So it's like I don't <laughs> think I can fairly judge this. Um, I will if you send me your postal address afterwards. I'll send you my DVD because I got the Blu-ray for Christmas. So because I, I would love someone to see it because I think it could have been the best Hound of the Baskervilles adaptation. Ever. Well, Ian, Ian but... Richardson is, is uh, certainly visually is a, is a perfect Holmes. He is, but um... they screwed up Watson. They made him into a bumbling, I, I say, tally, jolly, good. Oh, so you're a, a bit, bad guy, are you? Okay. A bit like the Nigel Bruce uh, in, the, in the Basil Rathbone yes. films. Which Imagine again... Nigel Bruce on heroin. <laughs> so he's like, <laughs> he has weird scenes where he's really active and then other scenes where he's just like coming down off the high. Um... <laughs> Oh, it's, yeah, it, it has the best Stapleton, definitely. And I'm not just saying that because I love Nicholas Clay. I love Nicholas Clay. Yeah, but I'm you, not saying you, it for that reason. You, you, sent me, you sent me a picture <laughs> and was like, look at his cheekbones. <laughs> yeah, you could cut yourself on you them. Could, you, you could do trigonometry with them. You could. I Well, funnily enough as well, he is in, uh, Nicholas Clay is in an episode of Grinnell. He plays Dr. Trevelyan in The Resident Patient, which is one of my favourite stories just because of the resolution of the story. Very Murder on the Orient Express. But um, so I, I liked Dr. Trevelyan and of all of the guest characters that could have been brought back in Anthony Horowitz's House of Silk, it's Dr. Trevelyan. 
and he has a really bad life. And now whenever I watch the episode, I'm just sad <laughs> because after Blessington gets arrested, he basically loses everything and ends oh. up working in a prison for less than minimum wage and can't get and is abused by the prisoners. So every time I watch it or read the story now, I'm just like, can you just not solve the crime? And then maybe Trevelyan could just stay in his practice. Um. <laughs> you know, he's, he's like quite a good guy. Sherlock Holmes basically ruins his life, <laughs> which yeah. is quite interesting. I've, um, I've got kind of like an, an, an example from the opposite end of things because uh, uh, Kim Newman, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he has he all, confusingly he has a book called Moriarty, oh. uh, <laughs> which is a which is a collection of shorts. Uh, that are essentially a perspective flip of you know it, it instead of uh, Holmes and Watson investigating and solving a crime, it's uh, Moriarty and Sebastian Moran committing a crime, and oh. a, an evil mirror universe uh, version of everyone. Like they, they've got a Mrs. Hudson because uh, Moriarty is uh, is based in a brothel, and their okay. sort of version of Mrs. Hudson is is the is the Madame who runs the place, and um, <laughs> uh, instead of the Baker Street Irregulars. Uh, Moriarty has the uh, the Conduit Street Comanche, who are like they're like the evil Baker Street Irregulars, you know. <laughs> they're, they're just cut purses and cutthroats. Because oh, I've got that on my shelf to read. Yeah, it's really good because Kim Newman is Kim Newman. He does lots of things like uh, he brings in like Moriarty has a plot to go after the Astronomer Royal, and it's the War of the Worlds. And awesome, Ogilvy. Yeah, uh, and he. Um, uh, obviously, like the, uh, he does his like the, he does uh, his own sort of Moriarty riff on Hand of the Baskervilles, but it's based on Tess of the Durbervilles um, <laughs> because of Mor- because Kim Newman being here he is. Uh, yeah. But the it was called the Adventure of the Greek Invertebrate, and uh, it's essentially you meet Moriarty, you meet uh, so you prefer James Moriarty, and you meet his brother James Moriarty because in the books for some reason. All of Moriarty's like like at one point they mentioned Moriarty's brother who was also called James. So I don't know whether Conan Doyle forgot that he'd named Moriarty James, but uh, mm. the, the the joke in the book is you meet Moriarty's brother who's who's also called James, and he runs the the Zeniades Club, which is like <laughs> the it's like the reverse of the Diogenes Club. It's it's you know it's a club for unclubbable men, but it's not because they're antisocial; it's because they're unbelievable dicks. <laughs> it's like it's the complete opposite of the Diogenes Club because like uh, Moriarty and Moran turn up and the place is in like an absolute uproar. It's like it's it's like the opposite of the rules of the Diogenes Club where silence has to be observed at all times. Mm. Um, the place is you know it, it's like it's always like a rave going on, uh, yeah. and they meet Moriarty and they meet Moriarty's brother who runs the place and he's kind of like an evil Mycroft. Uh, and then they go to <laughs> they go to um, a railway station in the countryside. Uh, and the station master is also Moriarty's brother, and he's also called James. So there's three <laughs> James Moriartys, uh, and they're all various, varying like shades of dick. And um, <laughs> they've essentially built a, it's kind of like an armoured train with a flamethrower on it. Um, and one of the characters in that is uh, Sophie Cratides from The Adventure of the Greek Interpreter. And she's kind of like Victorian Black Widow. She's now one of my favorite characters in the Sherlock Holmes books because, like, when, now when I read the Adventure of the Greek Interpreter, I'm like, like her as a character. She's I know that she's going to become like Mrs. Peel um, in the Avengers. Oh, that's awesome! Um, so, that's so cool. Kim, Kim Newman's Moriarty is definitely something that I recommend because he kind mm. of I think he approaches stuff like Holmes from because um, I know that I don't know where like uh, this is obviously something you'll know more about than me, um, like from an academic point of view, but the sort of influence that 
the Holmes stories had on, like the you know detective genre as a whole, but also on the pulps. Because mm. a lot of the Holmes stories they are quite pulpy, and they do sort of oh yeah, le- you know they they lay a lot of the groundwork for stuff. That, if you, if you read something like the Five Orange Pips, yes, um, that, or um. <sighs> Swarm Snakes are uh, just gone band. blank. Speckled Band. Or the one where the guy in Jackie Serum turns into a monkey. <laughs> it's like, the ones yeah. after Holmes is brought back and Arthur Conan Doyle is like, you know what? Fuck it. Monkey Serum. Because people are going to buy it <laughs> and read it anyway. Let's re- let's really test the limits of toleration of my audience. <laughs> yeah. um, Especially as I was saying, Holmes stories nowadays aren't what we would consider crime fiction because you do not get the same opportunity as him to solve the crime it's amazing that they're still held to be so seminal when they weren't even the first they were just the first to catch the blick's imagination and they did it because victorians had this very kind of awesome dual society it wasn't awesome but that's kind of how i'm describing it where it was very oppressed so everyone on the outside was very kind of you know everything is bad don't take pleasure in things blah 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 they also had the highest prostitution rate in like england in the entire history of england and they also had a fascination with the grotesque with the grisly freak shows things like that it's also why public executions were still so popular because you'd buy you know what we would consider to be a tabloid you'd read the sordid details and you'd go and see the horrible man or woman exit their crimes and it played very much into them reinforcing morality so it's no surprise to me that Sherlock Holmes took off so quickly because First of all, London was becoming unfamiliar. The Industrial Revolution had basically changed the face of London into this unrecognisable mass of people. And steadfast British public were becoming very worried. You know, their neighbours were people they didn't necessarily know. Communities were splintering into more clique kind of groups. And especially with Jack the Ripper on the loose at the time the first Sherlock Holmes story came out, people were very scared. And Sherlock Holmes basically strode in and was like, don't worry, I can make sense of society for you because society will bend to my will. If I say the Parliament doesn't act like that because Parliament don't act like that, you'll like that because it's me reinforcing your beliefs. In time, I will make sure that even though I don't have the reach of the police, who as well, the Victorian public did not trust the police, they did not like them one little bit, he was a civilian who was fighting the good fight against the bad people of society, against the murderers, against the blackmailers, against the even domestic abusers. And they liked that because it was one of them simultaneously not being one of them, which means that they could revere him. So you had this idea that was kind of like on the surface, you couldn't say damn in public you know, without being kind of, you know, that's not, you know, but then everyone would go home and read of the latest axe murder. And if anyone is interested, the book I'd recommend is The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. It's based on a real life murder case, a murder case of a small child. It's, it is pretty upsetting. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty bad, but it follows the kind of detective on that case. And the book is written in a very engaging manner. It's not like a dry historical novel. It touches on the detective's home life. It touches on his place in society. It touches on how he managed to solve the crime. And it touches on why people were so shocked when the crime happened because you had this entire public that was the crime and wanted to know all the grisly details and where the bloody drags were found. But when the eventual murderer was brought to the fore, they couldn't actually process or believe it because the person who was the murderer or the people that were the murderers fell outside of their remit for what polite society should be. So 
yeah in many ways Sherlock Holmes stories are quite safe because you have the bad criminal who is obviously either a mental deviant or a sexual deviant even if that wasn't written you never really had you know a a steadfast public official whom nobody had ever suspected before of stuff you always had someone who was going to be a bad guy or a bad woman regardless and in many ways i love the short home story to pieces it's my favorite detective it, it, not my fa- he's my favorite detective my favorite detective series would be poirot because agatha christie takes everything that whole that sir arthur conan doyle was prototyping and makes it perfect she is the game boy color to arthur Noel's <laughs> original brick game boy she takes everything the basic concept and just makes it a that bit much better i don't know where i'm going with this i'm, I'm babbling I know what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is Sherlock Holmes is really, but from a modern perspective, very flawed, very flawed and reads more like a Victorian morality play than actual crime fiction nowadays, I think. Um. Yeah, that's certainly, it's one of those things where the the things that sort of come to codify uh, Mm. or like things that are like the Ur example, uh, a lot of the time they do sort of differ. Because I know that... um, the, the example that I always think of is like when people sort of talk, say the Lord of the Rings as if it's, you know, very simple, you know, good versus evil, good triumphs in the end. Or it's like if you actually look at stuff in Lord of like the main character of Lord of the Rings, Frodo, ultimately fails in what yeah. he's, in what, you know, in what he'd been intending to do. So, uh, you know, and is and he's utterly changed by it in a way that I think was probably informed by Tolkien's experiences in the First World War. So even w- within because like there there is stuff in the Lord of the Rings is very simplistic, like the idea that sort of good and evil can be racial traits, which is very you know, which yeah. is very suspect to us now. Like yeah. um and the idea that, you know, you can have a race like the orcs who are always chaotic evil. Mm-hmm. Uh but even like Tolkien himself said in his letters that, you know, he he felt as if he'd have given the scope for there to be good orcs and, and you know, because obviously like Tolkien um coming from it from the perspective of a of a Christian. Mm. But if it's sort of the stuff that is codified into like the fantasy genre by the lord of the rings the lord of the rings sometimes you know often subverts in sort of in and of itself and i think the same is true of the home stories mm-hmm. you know when, when people sort of talk about you know like where the detective sort of gathers everyone in the parlor like that's that's mm-hmm. much more a thing than a, than a sherlock holmes thing i know yeah. like there's very few times like a lot of the i think in in more than you know in in quite a few of the stories holmes isn't kind of actually there for the genuine when the criminal is unmasked, he just basically tells the police and they go and sort it out. And then he's telling Watson, you know, afterwards yeah. how everything yeah. sort of shook down. Um, you know, yeah. there's very sort of few instances I can think of of Holmes sort of gathering everyone together and pointing and saying, it was you what done the murders. Um, yeah. <laughs> Conversely, we touched on this uh, back to the 80s, ages ago. I did a spotlight on the Blue Carbuncle as, you know, the Sherlock Holmes Christmas episode because we were doing Christmas episodes, Christmas movies. Out of all of the Sherlock Holmes stories, it's the one for me that breaks the mold. Because at the end, Sherlock Holmes has correctly identified the criminal and has brought the criminal to Baker Street and says to the criminal, I know that if I do what the law expects of me, you'll go to prison. You'll lose any opportunity of fixing your life because prison doesn't fix people. It breaks them even more in Victorian society. I'm going to let you go as long as you promise to never, ever do anything bad again because I know you did this out of desperation. And it's the one time I can think that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually broke with Victorian societal expectations, which was, you know, law good, criminal bad, 
because he himself recognised that there was a problem with the Victoria approach to rehabilitation in that there was none. You know, this guy had stolen something and would have gone to prison. He wouldn't have been able to get a job when he got out. He would have been surrounded by criminals who would most likely have physically abused him. He would have hardened up as a person. And through Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was basically saying this guy did something wrong. Nobody ultimately got hurt by it. Therefore, Sherlock Holmes is going to take exception to it and actually let it go. And that is echoed forward in Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, where, spoilers, uh, Poirot decides that because 13 people have chosen to murder the same man and those 13 people are equivalent to a jury convicting of his guilt, that is also fine because it follows some kind of moral convention that's outside and inside of the law. And that is a way that Sherlock Holmes can be interesting, because I have sat here and said, well, you know, it's very much a Victorian morality point. But Conan Doyle was a clever man. He, um, if anyone's ever read the book Arthur and George by Julian Barnes or seen the adaptation with Martin Clunes as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you'll know he was actually very invested in true justice, as in not what the courts say, but what actually went down what actually happened and in that he took someone who the newspapers were saying was guilty who the courts were saying were guilty and he said no this man is not guilty and i'm going to prove it and he did and i get a little bit annoyed sometimes because there could be more in the sherlock holmes stories you know they couldn't they didn't just have to be pulpy novels but then at the same time you have to remind yourself that they were churned out for the strand magazine they were to be sold as entertainment so in that vein they had something over the pulp fiction books because they were they did have that little bit more to them and it, it's important to recognize that it's as important as it is to say they've dated horribly and Sherlock Holmes wouldn't work in a modern context it's also important to say there was that little bit more in there that was a bit more critical than you know you can take from the surface of them yeah I know that uh, ele- elementary certainly sort of does that very well when it sort of shows that uh what is legal is not necessarily what is just and mm. that um and sort yeah. of like the, the limits. Everything I've said and put it in a sentence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the sort of the limits of toleration of Sorry, that. Like, I, I talk too much. No, no, that's. I mean, I got you on here to talk a lot about Sherlock Holmes, which is something that I know that you like and you know a lot about. So it'd be kind of weird if it's like <laughs> Shushbecker. Um, <laughs> this Maddie time now. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, I'd say Elementary does that very well, especially as, like, as a facet of Holmes's character, where he will sort of turn a blind eye to crimes that he thinks, that he feels are unjust. Well, it's all you know, where he feels that you know prosecuting someone would not i mean because obviously like because because he's coming from this from the perspective of also being a criminal himself from having mm. um like he's you know been in a position where although he's been solving crimes for many many years of his life he's also been committing them so i think that's kind of it, it's rendered him uh, a less uh sanctimonious uh character than i think he he, mm. he sort of would have been without that and i think that uh a, a poorly written Holmes is one where he does come across as sort of being more sort of fixated and single-minded pompous about yeah yeah um, working because sherlock Holmes breaks the law all the time um the master blackmailer he breaks into someone's house robs from his safe steals from his safe because this man is a bad man um holmes believes that blackmailers are the worst criminals of all so they break into his home to steal blackmail material and then witness the man himself be heard and decide not to go to the police because again well, like, the blue uncle, they're like you know what yeah they're like he got what he deserved so who cares 
you know, the police weren't ever going to arrest him. So this woman took it into her own hands and good on her. Let's just never discuss it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's something that I've sort of talked about in the past, um, sort of to, com- to compare. I mean, the, the comparison of a Neville between uh, the BBC's Sherlock and uh, ABC's Elementary. Um, but the thing that I sort of that sort of struck me is that the Sherlock in Sherlock is very much the sort of the Sherlock Holmes that Holmes is in the stories is uh, sort of keeping himself as where he is like you know where he says like you know he's just a completely analytical logical uh, he's just you know a, a, he's more sort of calculating machine than than a person he's just focused on solely on solving crimes finding the solutions to problems uh whereas the the homes in elementary is very much more the character that you sort of discover Holmes to be throughout the course of reading the stories where he's very sort of he's very like you know he's he's sentimental and romantic um and uh it's not something that i've sort of really ever seen uh addressed ever in a you know in any sort of home story or even sort of like written about that much i kind of come from uh the vantage point of looking at sherlock holmes and saying much how um you sort of mentioned earlier about how the way that he's written you know makes it sort of difficult to argue with that the way that he's written sort of makes him a a good uh, example of uh, ace representation the same is kind of true of um representation for people on the autistic spectrum because holmes is kind of you know things that he does were sort of familiar to me as an autistic person because like holmes was sort of was was you know willing to sort of flout the sort of mores of victorian society if they didn't make sense to him and i know sort of for for myself and for a lot of other people that is also a thing where like it, it it's kind of it's easy to read holmes as an autistic character mm-hmm. um yeah. but it's not sort of so much to the point where it becomes uh, you see like you know like a lot of things where like in investigators have like will have like you know neurological difficulties as a gimmick it never sort of yeah. comes to that point but it's like sort of the society and the sort of place within it that Holmes occupied i think that would kind of lend it that to me lends itself very well to an autistic reading of Holmes because he he's he is the kind of person who would sort of respond to the you know like the society was like oh well you know we have you know these are the rules and everyone has to do this and this is what is done and this is what is not done because we say and Holmes is like the kind of person who would look at it and say eh, well I'll, I'll figure me I'll figure it out myself thanks um yeah. and yeah. whether it's in terms of like social conventions or like criminal justice that's kind of the sort of the, the beauty of Sherlock Holmes is that there is such a wealth of material it is kind of it's almost like too easy to read it's one of those things where like people could say like you could you could almost read whatever you want into him but it's like well that's kind of why we have fiction you know it's why we've been telling stories for as long as we've had spoken language yeah we as parables we tell them as morality plays we tell them as comforting childhood bedtime stories or terrifying childhood bedtime stories if your (laughs) kid is being a little shit um it's why we have father christmas you know, we use Father Christmas as the, if you're not good, you don't get these materialistic items you desire because the fantasy man will not bring them to you. And this if is... he doesn't bring them to you, you can't blame mum and dad. You can only <laughs> blame your own poor behaviour. Actually, we were discussing today with a woman, she's got a three-year-old kid in our office, and she was saying how, like, she doesn't believe in it because it's manipulative bullshit. And I was like, yeah, I can kind of see that, actually. So she's not going to bother with it because why should she? But yeah, it, it's easy to read a lot of things into a who 
whose character isn't really the point of the story. Um, books kind of tend really tend to fall into one of two, well, stories in general, one of two categories. You have an epic, which is about world building and a bit Lord of the Ringsy, you know, epic universe, etc. And then you have the very kind of personal story, which I'm going to say something like Paul Hawkins' Girl on the Train, mm. which is more concerned with characters and their flaws. Um, you have lots of media that sort of cross between the two, but generally one or the other, because some aspect of the story has to be sacrificed to allow a greater focus for the world building or for the character development. You can't have a character driven story if you spend 400 pages talking about how work, for example. Um, unless your character the is a spaceship. Is... Unless your character is a spaceship, unless you are a transformer, um, unless you are Cosmos. The Transformer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because um... the reader's attention, the reader won't know what to pay attention to. So you have to be... And Arthur Conan Doyle didn't have to paint the world of Victorian England because it was contemporary and people reading it would know what a parlour maid was, what a butler was, what a mansion house was. He didn't have to go into explanations for it. So the point of his stories were the crimes being committed and how they're solved, not what Sherlock Holmes's favourite flavour of Coke was. I meant Coke as a Diet Coke then, but it also works as a pun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like I've, I've read a lot of fan fiction in my time. I've written a lot of fan fiction. I never, never touched Sherlock Holmes because he is a difficult character for me to write. But you can always tell in a more character-driven story when authors of fanfic haven't got the point because the character reads as off. Whereas in Sherlock Holmes stories, you know the writer hasn't got the point when the mystery is off because there's too much or too little information being provided or Sherlock Holmes is solving things that he or knowing things that he actually has no physical way of knowing which was where uh, Sherlock the TV series writing began to seriously fall down because he was basically psychic and then he had a story who a sister who really was psychic what a surprise <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, how much i hate the fourth season of sherlock yeah um i i haven't seen anything past season two and uh Good. nothing that, nothing i'm hearing is season. um is, is making me wish to revise that anytime soon um <laughs> she but, puts uh, him in a box how did she get him in the box I, I... it's a thing and uh sort of sort of segueing from them giving sherlock holmes uh, a sister who puts him in a box and is psychic i think one of the reasons that uh holmes is such an effective blank slate character is stories don't go that much into who he is as a person like yeah. we, we never sort of find out about his backstory uh lots of other works have gone into that and you know done it like i mean obviously there's young sherlock holmes which i know I, i've met like a lot of purists who don't like it because they don't like the idea of like holmes meeting watson before holmes met watson I don't really mind. It's it's fine. It's fine. I have an Elseworlds policy with Sherlock Holmes where anything that wasn't written by Arthur Conan Doyle is an AU, so it doesn't matter yeah, if it like, breaks canon. Some of the stuff like in, in Arthur Conan Doyle contradicting and Doyle, like, he didn't give a shit, so I did fail to see why I should. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty that, sure he gets Watson's middle name wrong at some point. Um, yeah, it's his, I think his middle name... But then in another story it's not, or he says he doesn't have no, a middle name. Um, I think it's something to do with like his. At one point, uh, in in one story, Watson's wife calls him James instead of John. Yeah, and that's it. People have theorised that his middle initial is Hamish, which is also, of course the Scottish equivalent of the name. Right. So okay. They're saying, oh, it was a pet name based on his middle name. Yeah. Wasn't because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle <laughs> didn't give a shit and forgot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's it's like it's it's that kind of it's that kind of approach where. Because we know so little about Holmes, 
I mean, I mean, it's like very sort of famously like when when uh, when Mycroft is introduced in the stories. Watson's like, I didn't know you had a brother, and I'm just like, well, I didn't tell you. Yeah, you know, never came up. Um, so it's it's one of those things is like because of who Holmes is as a character, because he's so sort of cagey almost, because he gives so little away. Like you know, what you know can still occasionally find things out about him. Like at the same time that the reader does. I'm just imagining how Watson like sat in Baker Street, going, "Wait a minute, you have parents? You never told me you had parents. I just assumed you hatched from an egg, <laughs> a very analytical egg, um, <laughs> a logical egg." Yeah. So um, it's it's that it's that kind of thing because Holmes is is sort of so open to inter. You know, it's so like you know, it's it's a little bit like you know, I've I've read sort of various different books about how um uh, the the gap in uh, in the bible between uh Jesus performing the miracle of the wedding at Canaan and then him sort of beginning his like going off into the desert beginning his ministry and stuff like the there's a gap of like 18 years in Jesus's life and i've read various things of where people have you know it's like oh he went to and trained as a druid and it's like no he went to tibet and trained as a lama um not that kind of llama um but uh yeah it, and it's it's kind of a similar thing with Holmes, like because the there's there's so much sort of blank slate stuff uh actually uh andy lane the guy who wrote all consuming fire the doctor who Holmes crosser uh he is actually i think it's the same guy he's written a series about young sherlock holmes called young sherlock oh yeah my dad has read them i haven't but he loves them this is kind of unclaimed territory so i'm just gonna go and yeah shuffle some things around there, and see there's what. um novels about uh his retirement that were written from like a um more of like a rom-com point of view because the test is a lady who wants to be a detective and she kind of hangs around with him at his country retreat keeping bees but she also helps him solve crimes oh yeah um the, the mary russell uh series That's it, mary russell yeah series. i've yes. got them on the shelf i'm mm. looking at them now um yeah. mary russell is one of my favorite sort of ancillary holmes characters that have sort of Sure. I mean, it's one of those things um, where people are like, oh, she's a Mary Sue and she's like an author self-insert. And it's like, yeah, but shut up. It's good. They're still good stories. They're good. I like yeah. her. She's being a character and she tells him to shut up when, yeah. he, when he's when he's being a dick. And uh, here's sort of something that I can't abide is when that's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's such a fine line because hmm. there's, you know, you've got sort of stories like, you know, like the Mary Russell books where she is sort of inserted into it as almost as like a foil for Holmes. And mm-hmm. he's like really good at lots of things and has like a, a, you know, a very like a really sort of deep connection with Holmes and stuff. And I know people complain about that, but I'm just so on board for that. But then you take something like um, there's a book called Angel of the, the Angel of the Opera, which is another um, Holmes versus Phantom of the Opera story. And I've never... Like I haven't read it because I couldn't. I didn't get past like the prologue because the prologue was about how Holmes never actually liked Watson and Watson was an idiot and Holmes's real bestie was actually his cousin who's this character just made up and I just pitched oh, the gosh. thing into a box and never touched no. it again. I was like, see that to me is true, Mary Sue. It, the I've met. I've only read one Mary Russell book, but to me, she wasn't a Mary Sue because she respected the canon and didn't try to rewrite what happened. Like you said there, you know, the person Watson's rubbish. I was his real Watson. Yeah. That to me <laughs> qualifies as Mary Sue. Whereas the other one disqualifies as a bit, you know, kind of author having fun with it. I, my sort of favorite part of um, the beekeeper's apprentice, which is the first book in the Mary Russell series is um, before uh, Russell meets Watson, um she is prepared to hate him 
she sort of she doesn't like him sort of based on his books um uh, mm-hmm. she thinks that he's she thinks that he's i mean she's like i think she's supposed to be like 17 or something or like she's like 17 or 18 when the book takes place and um Holmes and Watson are in their 50s and she's she's prepared to hate Watson and like part of it is sort of jealousy that you know here's a man like he's known Holmes for like 40 years mm-hmm. uh well not you know he's he's known Holmes for you know sort of thir- yeah. you know 20 30 years like a, a good sort of chunk amount of time and has that kind of like history and connection with Holmes that she doesn't have and she's kind of like prepared to like seriously Watson. and then she meets him and she just loves him so much because he's yeah. such a good person and because he thanks her for sort of coming into Holmes's life and giving Holmes like a purpose like to te- you know teaching her to be a detective it, it causes him to voluntarily give up cocaine because yeah. he he you know he doesn't need that sort of just he doesn't need the distraction of it anymore and I think that's a good that, that's like the approach to Watson that I like in sort of Holmes fiction where sort of the recognition of how important Watson is to Holmes yeah um, yeah definitely um, with regards to the Granada Holmes, there's a very kind of Star Trek versus Star Wars uh, kind of feel in the fans. Do you like David Burke or do you like Edward Hardwick? I like them both equally because David Burke portrays Watson's compassion, his belief in other human beings. Um, he's a little bit bumbly, so he has a kind of the influence of the Watsons who've come before, but never to the point where it's silly. You know, you just believe it's part of his character. And then Holmes fakes his death and comes back for the empty house and David Burke is replaced by Edward Hardwick. And Edward Hardwick is much more not putting up with Holmes's bullshit, still got that warmth and compact, <laughs> is a lot more jaded and world-weary. And it feels like a natural progression of the character. Um, it's, it's one of the rare instances where they changed an actor midway through a series and it actually improved the series, not because the original character wasn't any good, but because it felt like the character was growing by having a different tale to what had come before. Yeah, I mean, I I prefer David Burke, but I think I would have to sort of do some serious self-examination and try and figure out to what extent that is informed by the fact that Edward Hardwick kind of looked like Manan's sister, but with a (laughs) moustache. So, (laughs) I don't know. That's a a little bit too close to home for me to have a kind of objective um, thing. But I liked liked Edward Hardwick. That's the thing. I like them both. I'm going to watch either of them. Um, and cause... side note, David Burke's son, Tom Burke, is currently starring as Cormoran Strike in the J.K. Rowling uh, adaptation of her book. Um, first three episodes is The Cuckoo's Calling, second two episodes is Silkworm. And he's playing a private detective who's basically like a Sherlock Holmes who lives above a guitar shop and never remembers to. <laughs> there's one point there's no toilet in the shop, so he goes in a a cup and puts it on his windowsill and his Watson comes in and says oh that's a dirty cup I'll go and wash it for you he's like no 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 it's fine it's all good <laughs> and he just pours it out the window <laughs> yeah, it's just that... something I could imagine a modern Sherlock Holmes doing it's great to be yeah, honest it's, it's it's the kind of thing I could imagine the Victorian Sherlock Holmes doing yeah it really um... is really, like, <laughs> why, why is your slipper so damn oh no reason um, out the window. one of my uh, one of my favorite um ever uh, sort of Holmes jokes uh, was uh, an episode of I'm sorry I'll read that again uh, mm-hmm. the old uh, radio show with uh, John Cleese Bill Oddie Graham Garden uh, Tim Brooke Taylor yes. Joe Kendall uh, David Hatch and uh, they did they did an ep- I think they did an episode based on like you know they had like a skit based on Hound of the Baskervilles and it was a complete like send up of of the Holmes <laughs> some sort of like court, you know it's like uh, Watson uh, be a good man uh, hand me my tobacco it's like uh, certainly Holmes where is it it's like oh it's uh, in a the toe of a Persian slipper on the mantelpiece 
and uh, and later on where they have to actually go out and solve the crime. Uh, Watson, would you be a good fellow and fetch my socks? It's like, yes, Holmes, where are they? Uh, they're in a tobacco jar under the bed. Um, and there's a bit where they sort of mention that Holmes is going to um, play the violin to sort of to, to meditate and uh, to sort of unwind. And then you hear some of the sound of someone playing a trombone and um, Watson going, uh, nobody plays the violin like you, Holmes. Um, actually, I'd say it's maybe controversially uh my favorite version of the hound of the baskervilles uh that i've ever seen was uh, about 10 years ago uh i went to the everyman theater in liverpool and i saw a three-man play of the hound of the baskervilles uh and it was one of the funniest things i've ever seen in my life not least of which because the guy playing sherlock holmes was spanish and like they made no effort to disguise the fact that he was spanish uh, and he was, you know, he was playing Holmes, and he was also playing, like, you know, he was playing, like, sort of uh, various characters throughout the thing. And um, uh, the guy's name was uh, Javier Marzan, and he was so funny. Because he was just, he was doing it so straight. But the fact that he had a Spanish accent just made it sort of so, like, surreal. Uh, and the guy who was uh, playing Watson is a guy called John Nicholson, who was absolutely hilarious. And they had the, the guy playing uh, Sir Henry Baskerville. And uh, they just, the things that they did was so funny but the my favorite one was at the start of the second half like after the interval um the guy playing Holmes comes out uh and he said he's had a note sort of passed to his dressing room during the interval which was uh someone in the audience complaining that they can't understand what he's saying and he's sort of taken umbrage to it so he he makes them do the whole of the first half of the play again in 10 minutes and it's oh, like wow. it's like every single laugh first half in 10 minutes and i thought i was going to die um <laughs> but that's kind of you know sort of homes sort of being used for comedy mm. is you know has you know its own kind of history i mean there's obviously these the um the peter cook and dudley moore was was that hand of the baskervilles it had elements of it in there yeah. but it was sort of kind of several stories it was also like, but uh one of my sort of favorite ones it was one of the sort of the I know it's like I know it's something that I saw when I was a kid, which is a little bit weird. But uh, I really like um, "Without a Clue." Uh, mm. Is actually Watson is the detective, and Holmes is just an actor that he's hired to basically yes. like uh, a mouthpiece and a figurehead. You know, because like Watson, you know, it would be too slow him as a doctor to be running around and solving crimes. Uh, yeah. So he invents this character of Sherlock Holmes and gets this drunk out of work actor to to play him. And then yeah. he has to try and be actually be Sherlock Holmes. But that's like the the kind of things that you can do with Holmes as a character and with the Holmes stories as you know, almost like as a setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, because they are so malleable. You can update them, you can change them slightly, you can make them into a comedy, you can make this pretty much whatever you want. Um, I mentioned it earlier, but the Warlock Holmes book is really, really good as a pastiche because. It borders on the absurd, but in such a way that I don't often laugh out loud at books. Discworld books can make me laugh out loud. This made me laugh so hard that I had tears coming out of my eyes just because (laughs) of how slapstick and it shouldn't have been funny because it was almost badly written, but on purpose. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And it's just absolutely incredible. They they basically set up the resident patient where... Watson is kind of aware that there's only one reason that a man would ask a younger man to move in with him, 
and is kind of very kind of hinting towards it throughout the whole story. Sherlock Holmes is completely oblivious and thinks it's just an innocent business transaction. And there's a point when and they make kind of a joke about how flexible he must be. And Sherlock Holmes just takes it completely straight because he's like, well, yeah, he's in the ballet. Of course he'd be flexible. Watson sat there like completely humiliated, like, oh, my God, they're talking <laughs> sex. And yeah, it, it's just really good. I, I would recommend it if you enjoy Holmes's pastiches, like the comedy <laughs> pastiches done done wrong but also done so right <laughs> um that's that's actually um one of my favorite um parts of uh, the private life of sherlock holmes mm-hmm. is uh, where they go to the ballet and uh holmes uh, they sort of they're, they're sort of invited to the after party yes yeah and all the girls and uh, holmes, is, holmes is like propositioned by the prima ballerina that says you know i'm really i'm really pretty you're really smart and yeah. um to to sort of get out of it holmes kind of like pleads homosexuality and <laughs> yes. um says that uh, him and watson are a couple uh, so and then sort of words start circulating so Watson's mm. been dancing with a load of ballerinas and then they sort of like all sort of filter off and then get replaced by male ballet dancers and then Holmes just fucks off he's like, yeah. you know, da- like you know once he's let that particular cat out the bag he just goes and then yeah, it shows like Watson sort of running back through the streets and then angrily having it out with him yeah and um it's got one of my favorite lines in it where uh Watson you know where Watson's complaining like you've made people think that we're gay everyone's gonna think that we're a couple and then Watson goes, there's only one thing for it, Holmes, we shall have to get married. And Watson goes, <laughs> and Holmes goes, surely that would only make things worse, Watson. He's like, to women, damn you! <laughs> but it's, uh, it's just kind it's of perfect. Um, I, I need to rewatch The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes because I've only seen it once and I fell asleep halfway through. And there's things in it where I don't know if I actually saw them or if I dreamed them. Um, <laughs> but I definitely know that Christopher Lee is Mycroft. You're used to sort of like seeing Mycroft being played by, you know, men of a more ample stature than mm-hmm. Christopher Lee. Portly men, yes. Uh, yeah, like Charles Grey uh, played him in the Granada series. He's, even to this day, he's kind of my, you know... He's my go-to. Yeah, yeah. if I think if I think about Mycroft, I think I've, you know, picked, I, like, I picked Charles Grey. Um, Mine was, until I saw the second Guy Ritchie film where he's played by Stephen Fry. And it's like, oh, well, if I've got a choice yeah, of I can understand that. anything, I'll, I'll have to pick Stephen Fry. <laughs> <laughs> um... It's it's kind of an interesting. As far as I'm aware, there's never really. I don't think anyone's ever actually spun off Mycroft as a character because I know there's there's a series of books uh, that star Irene Adler. Uh, what you know, there's even like you know people have written books where Watson is the main character. As far as I'm aware, there's never really been anything where Mycroft is the mate is like the focal character. I mean, he he, he a couple of Kim Newman's Diogenes Club stories, but even then, he's kind of like M and James Bond. He's you know he's, he's, a lot of the time he's more sort of like behind the scenes and he's you know exerting his influence yeah uh, I, I think bbc sherlock is probably the property that's done the most with him it's certainly making him the most integral to the main character through his own stupidity um it's meant to be sharp he's meant to be smarter than sherlock <laughs> um there's actually kind of it, one uh t- a series of books that i like is the nero wolf series by rex stout uh we're written in the 20s and 30s i think and it, that that you know in itself is kind of a little bit of a riff on sherlock holmes because um the detective in that nero wolf he is essentially mycroft he doesn't like leaving his apartment he doesn't like going out he's you know he's quite hefty he doesn't like moving so he basically mm-hmm. employs a guy called archie goodwin to actually do all the detective work and then just brings him <laughs> like he's just like go out get the information bring it to me i'll solve the crime from here and i think he, he you know like mycroft holmes must have been um an influence on that because mm. uh, which is again is kind of like another thing that conan doyle kind of has in 
the books, like the idea that a single man could be the British government, and, yeah, and exert that kind of you know that kind of influence. Yeah, because obviously, like in, in Victorian, certainly in Victorian literature, you do have sort of books that go into stuff like the Great Game, like mm-hmm. um, stuff like the Man Who Would Be King, uh, just you know things like where it's you know like them sort of like playing the game of empires and and doing all that sort of horrible stuff um but yeah. on, on like the global scale uh, and the, the idea of I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing but more than once i've come across um stories where the villain in like where it's a home story but the villain is churchill okay certainly was yeah i don't think it's controversial to say that winston churchill was not a nice man by any stretch of the imagination but to have him sort of set up as like a kind of antagonistic version of mycroft um, there's there's a really good story called uh, Be Seeing You. Oh, I wish I could remember who it was by. Uh, I can't oh, I can't get to the book. It's basically Sherlock Holmes wakes up in the village from the prisoner, which okay. which they have built to contain Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> and you know and and stuff like comes out of it like um that because because basically Mycroft's disappeared and he's taken a lot of his information with him because he wants to keep it out of Churchill's hands because he doesn't mm-hmm. trust Churchill so. To find out where Mycroft is, they kidnap Holmes and stick him in the village. Uh, and there's like there's lots of like like nice little touches. Like they they refer to Holmes as Danger Man, the cousin okay. man in the country, because he's potentially the only man who can find Mycroft Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they do a thing um, like Holmes eventually escapes, and uh, they decide to keep the village open uh, for various other you know for like to, to, to put similar individuals. And like because. Holmes's birthday is the sixth of January. They, they will always call the person that they put their number six. So it's kind of like a Holmes, oh, okay, that's a Holmes prisoner mashup. It's like it's like a it's prequel. Done, it's done so well, and it's got stuff like he gets chased by the rover, but it's a like sort of bubblegum thing. It's like a big metal ball, and it's powered by uh, Cavorite, which is the the anti gravity material from H.G. Wells's The First Men in the Moon. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of one of uh, it's it's a series of books called Tales of the Shadow Men, which is kind of like uh, examining like pulp character, you know, like basically reappropriating pulp characters and doing different things with them sort of crossing them over and bringing in like different things like there's one of my favorite stories in it uh, is called the famous ape uh, by chris robertson which is basically uh, a cross between babar and animal farm uh, <laughs> which sounds insane and it kind of is but it works really well as wow. a story uh, but holmes kind of being in with the pulp characters makes a lot of sense to me and i i kind of i've never come across one but i really hope that there is there exists somewhere a sherlock holmes and tarzan crossover um because i'm not i'm not quite sure sort of how such a thing would play out but that that kind of holmes kind of like i think there's a reason that holmes does kind of get put in stories like end up in um shadows over baker street or uh, i've got a really good anthology called the improbable adventures of sherlock holmes Yes, I have that one. Yeah, it's where, awesome. it, where yeah. they do sort of like the the various like weird things with the character and mm. is, is that the one I, I read a short story ages ago. I keep meaning to Google it. It's a Sherlock Holmes short story, and there's this like mysterious illness sweeping this village, and it's all from this like mound on the hill. And the whole story is framed that it's a supernatural thing, and then right at the end you realise it's uranium. They've discovered uranium, yeah, but I where that, people have been the... handling it, yeah, they've gotten sick. Yeah, and, and I've, yeah, that's another of my favourite ones. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there's there's some in it that are just like fairly straightforward home stories. I mean, there's one by Anthony Burgess, which is just like mm. Holmes and Watson go to the theatre and then they solve a crime. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, this is like this is Anthony Burgess. This is the tamest thing I've ever read. <laughs> uh, I've 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 got um, the Mammoth Book of New Sherlock Holmes 
uh, adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I haven't dipped into it that much yet. Uh, there's a story in it by Guy N. Smith, which I'd be interested to read. But it, the bar's kind of set high for that because he wrote a story. Uh, he wrote a series of books uh, about uh, giant killer crabs coming out of the sea and menacing mankind. Um, <laughs> so if this story isn't a Sherlock Holmes versus giant killer crabs, I'm going to be kind of put out. Um, Definitely, I would be. But uh, a book that I've been after for years, I've never managed to give it because, but I'd be interested to see how it plays out. Is uh, Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds? Yes, that has been on my to-do list <laughs> as well to get this because you can. It would be interesting because War of the Worlds. People judge War of the Worlds as being either the fifties movie, the blockbuster, or the musical, when actually it was a very personal story of one guy's survival. The musical is the closest adaptation you've got to it. Yeah. And it would totally work as a character study of Sherlock Holmes versus the Martians if it's done on a level enough level. It would be really good, especially as War of the Worlds, mankind doesn't win. Bacteria wins. So it would be interesting to see how the conclusion of the book plays out. Um, mm. I keep meaning to get the sequel because someone's written a sequel to War of the Worlds. I want to get it. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah. but I suppose one crossover we've not mentioned is Star Trek. You have... Um, in kind of the weirdest one for me is that data is very much on a parallel with Sherlock Holmes. He's an outsider looking in. So he does put himself in Sherlock Holmes's shoes. He picks Geordie to be his Watson because he's like the best friend, the one that understands him when no one else does. But the most interesting aspect of it is that bit's almost cast aside. And the story instead focuses on the fact that they create a Moriarty who's so clever, he becomes a sentient hologram. Yeah, I, I I remember that that was one of my favorite episodes of Next Generation. Mm. I think it's because the they ask the holodeck to create a Moriarty of defeating Data rather than defeating Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and because of like Data's like positronic brain and stuff, computers like all right. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like you need to think about the exact thing you're asking for. Yeah. Also, um, that computer is so powerful it created a sentient being from scratch. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, um, there is another sort of Sherlock Holmes uh, connection to Star Trek in the, uh, the Undiscovered Country, which was written and I think directed by Nicholas Meyer, who wrote The 7% Solution and The Canary Trader and The West End Horror. So sort of, he's a Sherlock Holmes fan. Like, yeah. Whenever they didn't have him for a film, the film wasn't as good. So uh, <laughs> he's like he was involved with all the good ones like uh, Wrath of Khan and The One with the Whales. Uh, and in the sixth one, uh, The Undiscovered Country, Spock actually says, mm. uh, in the words of my ancestor, and then he runs out, you know, when you've eliminated the impossible. And people have sort of taken that to mean that Spock's mother, who is human, was is related to Arthur Conan Doyle. But more people have said he's related to Sherlock Holmes. Holmes, yeah. Which is kind of... Spock, in a sense, almost is a sort of space Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And I think if, they, if they'd had the holodeck in the original series, I think that's possibly something that... Like they could, they would have done the the similar thing with uh, they did with Data in Next yes. Generation. Yeah, and I I kind of I would like to see like I'd like you know I'd, I'd I'd be interested to see if anyone's actually ever done like there was there was like a gangster planet or something stupid you know there was a gangster planet and there was a Nazi planet yeah it's like so you're, it's you're, you're telling me there isn't a Sherlock Holmes planet I don't buy it. <laughs> there's a, there's a planet where someone accidentally left behind the Avengers of Sherlock Holmes. And they took that to be their Bible instead of, was it guys and dolls that got left behind on the gangster so. planet? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, there was totally, Starfleet officers are leaving shit behind all the time. So, it's fine. Yeah. Um, 
the the sort of the nerd crossover mm. with like because it, it's one of those like Sherlock Holmes is kind of a weird thing where the home stories I think are kind of as big in nerd spaces as they are like in the real world. <laughs> Holmes is one of those things where you do have things like Holmes versus Cthulhu, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like because Holmes is so ubiquitous culturally all over the world, it, it's kind of like it's a, it's 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 almost like a weird thing where people would. I mean, there are probably people who've like you know who who aren't into like nerd stuff at all, but who, like you know are familiar with Sherlock Holmes, who would probably find the idea of something like Sherlock Holmes versus the Martians to to be ridiculous, and like it kind of is, and that's kind of the appeal of it. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's getting to the point now where so much has been done with Sherlock Holmes as a character, you want to see more weird stuff because it's more original. Yes, and less derivative. Yeah. And, you know, whether that's Sherlock Holmes versus the Martians or being a mouse. Like... <laughs> yes, exactly. Great mouse detective. Which, criminal across criminal, I've never seen. I can't, I, that's the, I, I can't really be objective about it because I'm pretty sure it was the first Disney movie that I ever saw. Uh, mm. And I love it so much. But I, I think there's definitely stuff to enjoy there for a fan of Sherlock Holmes. Not least of which, I think, because I'm pretty sure they have um, Basil Rathbone in it. Like he he pulls some dialogue from one of the old um, Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes films to have like Holmes talking to Watson before it kind of like pans into the sideboard where there's a whole like Tom and Jerry and it's like ah surprise it's mice. Um, <laughs> I think it's sort of in terms of Holmes pastiche and Holmes comedy, um, I think possibly my favourite one that I get to see sort of whenever I want is uh, the Gene Wilder film The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother. Uh, which isn't, as you might su- suspect, about Mycroft. It's about Sherlock Holmes's younger brother, who is also a detective. Uh, mm. Not as good. A w- and he's not as good a detective as Holmes, but he thinks he's better. Yes. And it's it's kind of the whole story is like Holmes kind of steering his brother through an investigation from the shadows, and it's got brilliant performances. Like uh, Leo McKern plays Moriarty, and mm-hmm. he has this speech about how. He doesn't actually want to be a villain, but he's kind of like he's got like some kind of like pathological addiction to villainy. Um, they they have like an opera that's been translated into English. Uh, his kind of uh, Gene Wilder's uh, Watson is is played by Marty Feldman, and yes. uh, Madeline Carnes is love interest. Uh, and it's it's it, it's like it's a thing. It's a ridiculous film, but it's at its heart such a good Sherlock Holmes story because you've got. Holmes and what? Because like Holmes and Watson keep throughout the story in <laughs> disguise to try and nudge Holmes's brother onto the right investigative track. There's a bit that um, one of my favorite bits is that, that he goes to the theater where Madeline Kahn's character uh, is a performer. She's like she's she's like a music hall singer, and uh, one of uh, Moriarty's henchmen is like soaring through like a beam that's got a sag that's got a fallen killer, and like the sand's like trickling down, you know, onto the stage. And Holmes is sat in front of his of his brother in disguise as a clergyman and he's like he sort of like picks up a bit of flicks it over his shoulder to get his brother to to notice the sand and he doesn't (laughs) so eventually he just picks up like a huge handful of sand and chucks it in his (laughs) face and um it does the really clever thing of having a holmes comedy where sherlock holmes is he's the straight man yeah which is is kind of a is kind of a stroke of genius it's a very Mm. weird film but i think it's definitely worth 
seeing just for the the sort of the elegant stuff that it does with having a Holmes comedy where it's not sort of making fun of Sherlock Holmes. It's it like the story requires Sherlock Holmes to be Sherlock Holmes in order for the story to yes. work. Yeah. So I think that, uh, that's probably going to do us because I was I was planning on uh, making this about an hour and a half and we've currently been going for about an hour and 40 minutes. You're welcome. <laughs> this is the deluxe bumper edition that you get at no extra cost. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Becca, thank you so much uh, for joining me and bringing me your uh, oh. vast wealth of Sherlock Holmes expertise. Oh, thank you for having me on. I will always talk about Sherlock Holmes, whether people want me to or not. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly enjoyed uh, talking to you about it. And uh, if this if this I sort of want it to turns into something that I do every year, uh, I'll definitely be asking you back for next year to maybe awesome. i was thinking about maybe um finding like a really terrible sherlock holmes movie yes, and do doing that. a commentary on it or something uh, that would be amazing we should do that definitely <laughs> so, uh right so this has been sherlocktober a most irregular podcast i'm matty i've been joined by the very wonderful becca becca do you want to plug anything before you leave um if anyone wants to talk to me about sherlock holmes you can wander on over to twitter my handle's at tain kirahi uh t-a-i-n-k-i-r-r-a-h-e um i do have a semi-regular podcast that i do with two lovely people called umar and erica where we talk about uh social issues in geek fandom which is civil podcast and the twitter handle is civil d podcast um we're on podbean so you know you can find it you can listen to us for free through the handy podbean app um I'm really in love with how easy Podbean is. <laughs> well, this will be going up on Podbean, so I can I can leave a look. Excellent, excellent, great. Hopefully we'll get some payment or something. I don't know. Podbean's <laughs> great. Pay us money. Um, but I'll, yeah, we talk about I'll send about you some sweets of... in the post. <laughs> some Haribo in an envelope. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in plain brown wrappings. Oh, no, no, no wrapping. Just Haribo in an envelope with no note <laughs> or anything. <laughs> Just flopping the through the door. cover. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Becca, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, there'll be more uh, Sherlocktober before the month is done, but uh, a wonderful time. Uh, I hope that you have too. Yes. Definitely. And I hope that anyone who's listened to this has also had a wonderful time. So thank you for joining us. Goodbye. Goodbye.